Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. We'll be on page 11. Uh, as always, we'll be doing some Q&R at the end here. If you have any questions, um, you can go to slido.com and use the code REVCDA to uh, enter some questions. We'll take a look at them at the end. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, walk through this book of Genesis, um, many of these stories for, for, for many of us are familiar if we've got a history in, in the Christian community. Um, but if we're honest, they're just they're weird. Uh, they're hard to understand. Um, we don't really, we read them and we go like, what, what are we supposed to do with that? Um, but your word is, um, is sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce between our soul and our spirit to um, divide the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And um, we just ask you that you would do that this morning. God, we're all at a, at a different place. We've all come off of our own weeks of, of joys and sorrows and stresses, and um, you know what we need this morning. And I just pray that as we uh, walk through this passage and, and um, try to discern how it applies to our, our world today, uh, that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think I mentioned this briefly in our Colossians study a couple months ago, but in March, there was an article written in the Washington Post called Consent is Not Enough, We Need a New Sexual Ethic. And it was written by a millennial journalist, a woman who did an extensive investigation of college life in America, did a lot of interviews with men and women uh, about their sex lives. And she found out that overall, while in this Me Too moment that we're living in, the rules of sexual engagement are clear and explicit and everyone knows their part, by and large, the young people in our colleges are not satisfied with their sex lives. And she writes, even when it goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections to each other, and our deepest selves. Despite the many and popular arguments that it's only a physical act, it is clear to almost anyone who has had it that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after an encounter ends. Over the past several decades, our society has come to believe that consent as a legal standard and a moral requirement could somehow make our most unruly activity more manageable but it was never going to be that easy. She goes on in the article to say that consent is a legal criterion, but it's not really a very good ethical one. It just doesn't work if that's our only tool for navigating our sexuality. And she says we need more than that. At one point in her article, she, she suggests that a helpful tool might come from the Christian uh, philosopher Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 13th century. He talked about love, and he defined love as willing the good of the other. And she posits, well, maybe if in our sexual relationships we started there, things might be better. 
I think that's worth thinking about. Why am I talking about this? This morning, we are going to investigate a story that illustrates a normal example of the sex ethic of the time that it describes. All three of the people in this story are participating in perfectly normal expressions of their sexual role in their society. You could even praise them for how honorably they are navigating their sexuality. And yet all of them come out of this experience significantly sexually broken. And while this, more, this story is more than about sex, and we'll talk about some, some other things as well, it's definitely not less than that. We may not read it that way, unfortunately, because we in our culture have so uh, clearly divided the act of procreation from the act of sex, which that's a very recent innovation if you didn't know. As we read this story, maybe we respond in horror. Consent is definitely not the sex ethic at work here. But what I want us to see here is that we need to be people that are committed to the ideal sexual ethic that God gives us in Scripture and not one that our cultural moment deems to be good and responsible. So let's take a look at this story. We're going we're gonna to meet three sexual partners. But before we do, let's recap a little bit. Last week, God doubled down on his promise to Abram, right? He said, Abram, you are my chosen representative. I'm going to build this great nation out of you. And Abram was like, oh, I don't have any kids. All I've got is this um, servant, and all my inheritance is going to go to him. And, and God says, no, Abram, you are going to have a biological son. And then he initiates this covenant um, Uh, confirmation ceremony with all of those bloody sacrifices that he walks through, and God unilaterally promises to Abram that he will take care of this. This is the promise. You will have a son. And then we read in chapter 16, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar, And Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, and Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. So with all this backdrop of this family being chosen by Yahweh to be the, 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 the one line that's going to be, um, create this amazing blessing for the world, Abram knows this, Sarai knows this, they're both incredibly old. At some point early on in their relationship, Sarai would have realized she couldn't have children, or at least that's what she would have assumed, and they're in their senior years now, so she's probably, after a while, kind of came to terms with the fact that she was unable to have children. But then this God that they don't know named Yahweh comes along and says, no, I'm going to promise Abram a son. I can only imagine that that brought all kinds of emotional trauma back up for Sarai. See, in In their world, the framework for procreation is that the man deposits the seed in the womb of the woman, and she incubates the seed. 
So as, as a woman, if you cannot get pregnant, there is definitely something wrong with you. In their world, Sarai is, is defective. Her, her main job as wife, she can't fulfill it. For a much less stressful example, think of, think of a young married couple. Maybe, maybe some of you can relate to this. And, and, um, and the, the young wife wants to bless her husband with a home-cooked meal. And she just totally burns the pot roast, right? And, and the loving husband comes home and says, you know, my mom makes a really good pot roast. <laughs> it's like, that's not what you, no, don't say that. But uh, feel, I mean, may, maybe some of you have experienced this very thing, where, where the, the desire to live up to the expectations of your marriage, and you can't. Hopefully, everyone can learn to cook. But Sarai cannot produce a child. And her barrenness was a curse. Her granddaughter-in-law later on has similar struggles. We read in Genesis 30, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister, give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. This is a big deal for women in the ancient Middle East. So how is Sarai going to solve this problem for herself and her husband? She's been informed, presumably, by Abram of the promise of God that Abram is going to have a biological child. And so she is going to begin to work within the expected sexual ethics of her culture by giving her slave girl to Abram so that he could impregnate her and Sarai could claim the baby for herself. And again, We may react to this as like, what's happening here? But this is totally normal. So let's talk about Hagar. Hagar is, chances are, since she's Egyptian, she was given to Abraham and Sarai as a slave back in chapter 12 when they were in Egypt, if you remember that part of the story. Verse 3 of chapter 16 tells us that that was 10 years ago. So it seems entirely likely that Hagar was probably a child when she was sold as a slave to Abram's household. She's grown up in their home. She's probably in her early to middle 20s. And it's important, though, as we naturally want to recoil from this whole situation, that we recognize that Hagar isn't completely being used and abused here. Theoretically, she gets an upgrade in status through this arrangement. She starts out as a slave girl, and she becomes a wife. Hagar should be getting something positive here, whether she wants it or not. And then we have Abram. Abram says and does very little in this episode. It's primarily focused on the two women. Abram just kind of goes along with the plan. And like I said, if you have any kind of modern sexual ethic, whether it's informed by Christian uh, ethics or just the ethics of consent in our culture, you should be freaking out a little bit. Like, this this is not okay. But it would have been totally fine in that culture. 
Gordon Wenham says, given the social mores of the ancient Near East, Sarai's suggestion was a perfectly proper and respectable course of action. The whole story just kind of makes sense to everyone. Bill Arnold writes, ancient Near Eastern parallels confirm that a wife's slave girl could reasonably be supplied to compensate for a barren womb. In fact, we should probably assume that Sarai was obligated to provide for Abram in this way, and none of the characters in the story so far are to be indicted for less than noble character. See, not only is Sarai barren in general, she is getting in the way of the promise of God. And it is only right for her to pursue whatever avenue is necessary to give Abram a child. Except, this is where the narrator comes in. And this is one of the things I love about the Hebrew Scriptures, is, is it's not always explicit. Moses here is just telling the story, but he's going to give us little hints about how bad this situation is. In Hebrew, the phrase Abram agreed to what Sarai said is the same wording that God uses in Genesis 3.17. In that verse, we read, and he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. The narrator is is picking up this language of because you listen to your wife, and he's inserting it into this text exactly the same way to get us to think about the story in Genesis 3. And this is not an encouragement, husbands, to never listen to your wife. In just a couple chapters, God is going to explicitly tell Abram to listen to his wife. It's a link back to the story of the fall. In, the, in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman seek out wisdom that they need to fulfill God's promises for their lives, but they do it outside of God's parameters for how to get that wisdom. Remember, they're called to rule and reign the whole earth, and they need wisdom. But they try to seek out God's blessings outside of the plan of God by bypassing God. Also, we read in Genesis 3 verse 6, so she, Eve, took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now look at Genesis 16, 3, so Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. All of the syntax of that sentence, all of those Hebrew words are exactly the same. The woman took and gave to her husband. The narrator is using these uh, word clues as like flashing warning lights, danger, 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 as much as the original audience reading this goes, that's totally to be expected. That's exactly what I would do in that situation. Moses is saying, no, this isn't okay. There's something wrong here. It's a normal cultural convention. Sarai will get a child. Hagar will become a wife. Abraham gets a child and a new young wife. Everybody gets their needs met. But just under the surface, we start to see like, oh, something is wrong here. So this story is not about modern polyamory, but it has its parallels. Uh, If many of you probably know about this um, phenomenon, but the idea of uh, consensual non-monogamy is becoming more and more popular in our 
in our culture. And it's, it's basically the idea that, that monogamy is, uh, we're not meant for that sort of lifelong covenantal commitment to one person, and we should be free to have as many sexual partners as we would like, and there shouldn't be any shame around that. Preston Sprinkle says as many as 5% of Americans are currently in relationships involving consensual non-monogamy. Mark Regneris says roughly 24% of church-going people believe that consensual polyamorous relationships are morally permissible. Because, of course, in our culture, our ethic is consent. If you have three people or four people or six people and they all want to have a uh, mutually beneficial sexual relationship with one another, as long as everybody's okay with it, it should be fine. And while there are loads of differences between our story this morning and the world in which we live and the culture that's forming around sex in our day, what remains the same is a discard for God's ideal for our sexual relationships. We live in a culture that considers lifelong sexually exclusive monogamy between two opposite sex people to be repressive and backwards. And if we're going to flourish as a people, we need to break up those boundaries and throw off those puritanical shackles. But this is the same basic assumption at work in Abram's culture. No one is doing anything culturally wrong in this story. Everyone's just filling out the roles that they've been taught to fill. But just like today, charting a sexual path outside of God's ideal leads to all kinds of sexual brokenness. So what does that look like in Genesis 16? Verse 4, when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. And Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. That didn't go very well, did it? Let's take a look at Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant as was expected. This was the plan. But she goes in a very short period from being a slave girl to a second wife, to the woman carrying her husband's heir, who potentially is the promise of God. Pregnancy would have been one of the highest honors for a woman in the ancient world. And because of all these things, Hagar gets proud. And you can imagine her mocking Sarai for her infertility, gloating that she could give Abram something that she wasn't able to. And this is very clearly sinful on her part. But then we get to Sarai. Sarai gets angry at Abram. It's your fault that this has happened, she says. Abram and Sarai brought a third person into their marriage, and did it bring them closer? It did not. And I think this is how, in my experience, sexual sin works. And I would, I would say that to a greater or lesser degree, almost all of us in this room can probably say that we have experienced some sexual brokenness, either of our own doing or having been done to, uh, done by, done to us by others. But every time I have sinned sexually, it seems like a really, really good idea beforehand. I don't know if you can relate to that. But you know what? It never, ever turns out to be. It's always a bad idea afterwards. 
And this is exactly what happens to Sarai. She thinks, this is, this is what we'll do. This is how I will fix my problem. This is how I will get my needs met. This is how I will find fulfillment. And immediately she regrets it. Sexual sin lets us down because it promises fulfillment of our desires and it never delivers. And then we have Abram. Abram Abram sins against Hagar here. Abram betrays his marriage to his new wife by not protecting her from Sarai. She's not a slave girl. She's She's not Sarai's slave to do with what she wants. She's Abram's wife. He owes her his protection. And he abdicates his responsibility towards her. He allows Sarai to mistreat Hagar so much so that she runs away. And I think Moses wants us to feel a little humble here. In the last chapter, when when God was telling Abram about the future of his people, he says, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. And you think, oh man, that's a real bummer. Everybody knows that this is Egypt. The original audience of this book has just lived through this story. They've just come out of Egypt in the Exodus. But Moses uses the same language here to describe Sarai's treatment of Hagar. Same word. Almost as if to say the Egyptians enslaved and oppressed you unjustly, but the mother of your nation oppressed an Egyptian slave girl first. So this is a really depressing story, isn't it? If only we could bring Jesus into it. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy, for she said, in this place I have, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Be'er Hai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So things are really bad for Hagar. She's running from an abusive situation. John Walton says the site of Bir Lahai Roy is most likely northwest of Kadesh on the Wadi El Arish. If Abram's camp is still in Hebron, she has traveled about 70 miles through inhospitable territory, pregnant and apparently alone. This means she has been on the road at least a week. This is the first time in the Bible that we meet the angel of the Lord. He's a pretty mysterious figure. 
Angel just means messenger. So you'd think this is somebody who, who's been sent by Yahweh to deliver a message. But in this case, and in many other places in the Old Testament where this figure appears, the narrative really blurs the lines between this being and Yahweh himself. In verse 10, the angel makes promises to her that seem like things only God would say. But in verse 11, the angel talks about Yahweh in the third person. But in verse 13, Hagar seems to think she's been talking to Yahweh himself and gives him a nickname. And we see this all over the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is in the burning bush, but he speaks with the voice of Yahweh. The angel of the Lord talks to Joshua about Yahweh in the third person, but he also receives worship like Yahweh himself. The angel of the Lord meets with Samson's parents and announces his birth. He tells them to offer sacrifices to Yahweh in the third person, but then they are terrified because they think they've seen Yahweh himself. What's going on here? This is what's called a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. The Jewish people develop their understanding of how God interacts with humanity from stories like this. By the time we get to about 200 BC, they had what modern modern scholars call a two powers in heaven view of God. Mike Heiser says it like this, the ancient Israelites knew two Yahwehs, one invisible, a spirit, and the other visible, often in human form. The two Yahwehs at times appear together in the text, at times being distinguished, and other times not. What he says is that what, what seems strange, but we see all the time in the Old Testament, is very often there is a Yahweh figure who is in heaven and inaccessible in some way, but there's also another Yahweh figure that appears in a bush or in a vision or as a human person, and the boundaries between them are kind of blurry. Rabbinical scholar Alan Segal did a massive study in the 1970s about this, and he showed that it was a really popular understanding in Jewish culture up until about the second century AD. And then it was decided that it was a heresy. What changed? Well, the church was born. Christians began spreading across the Roman world, evangelizing their Jewish brothers and saying, you know, that, that second Yahweh, that's Jesus. And so the Jewish people decided, well, we can't believe that anymore. And ever since, you may have heard that Jewish people are strict monotheists, and, and that's true. But it wasn't always true. Think about someone, a good Jewish man, repeating three times a day, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the most basic understanding of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. But then that same Jewish man named John writes, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Now, it's possible that the Christian movement just completely threw out monotheism and started fresh, and that all of these Jewish people just decided to abandon their whole worldview. But it seems more likely to me that the Christian tradition is based on the Jewish understanding that Yahweh appears as two separate beings in the Hebrew Scriptures. That there is some, in some sense, there is a oneness to God, and in some sense, 
there is a two-ness. And later on in the New Testament, we realize there's actually a three-ness in God when we begin to think about the Trinity. But the angel of the Lord here is Yahweh, is God. You could say a pre-incarnate Christ if you wanted to. And God knows who she is. He calls her by name. And then he asks her questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Think of all the times in the Bible that God asks questions like that. Like, God doesn't need to ask questions, right? Like, he knows everything. But he's always asking people self-reflective questions. John Calvin, in his, the beginning of his Institutes on the Christian Religion, says, Our wisdom, if it is to be thought genuine, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. We can never really seek him in earnest until we begin to despair of ourselves. Don't we all rely on our own strength when we are not aware of the real nature and are quite content with our own gifts, ignoring our misery? When do we come to ourselves? When we come... Sorry, when we do come to ourselves, we are spurred on to seek God and led by his hand to find him. Self-reflection is something that's important for us as followers of Jesus. And Hagar has been running from her abusive situation for a week. God shows up after a whole week, lets her be miserable for a week, And then says, hey, what's going on? What you doing? Sometimes I think we have to exhaust ourselves before we can even begin to hear God's voice, right? We're going so hard and we've got such a plan for how to get out of our situation. And Hagar, after a week of travel, now's the time when she can reflect on her situation and God can speak to her. So she tells him what she's doing. She's running away from her mistress. And he responds with a challenge and a promise. And the challenge is, go back to your mistress. That's a difficult command. That The abusive situation you're fleeing, I want you to go back to it. I'm going to continue to work in you and through this family through it. And that's generally not good advice. If you're in an abusive situation, chances are you should get out of it. You should talk to somebody. You should... Find a way out of that situation. It is likely not God's will that you stay in it. But this is a special circumstance. This is a God appears to me by a well sort of circumstance. I want you to go back there. There's work to be done. And then he gives her a promise. I will greatly multiply your offspring. This is the same promise that he's given to Abram. Hagar has been folded into the blessing of Abram. Her participation in the family gives her access to those promises. There's several places in the scriptures where women are blessed by divine beings and then given birth announcements. Kind of the pinnacle of this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's told that that she is going to have a son and he's going to be the savior Um, she's a virgin and she doesn't understand how that's going to work. And and the angel says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. It's going to be a miracle. This is difficult because she's unmarried, right? There's going to be problems here. After the baby's born, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to be circumcised. 
And they, they meet this man named Simeon. And in Luke, we read that Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may re- be revealed. In Mary's situation, this blessing of a child comes with a challenge of a difficult life. Hagar's life will be blessed, but it will also be marked by significant pain as her son grows up to be something of a wanderer and an outcast. She's going to have problems with her family going forward. Mary's life will be blessed, but it will also be marked by significant pain as she raises her son under the um, whisper of the community that she got pregnant out of wedlock and eventually sees him arrested and abused and crucified. But Hagar accepts this word from Yahweh, accepts the challenge, accepts the, pro- the promise, and she gives him a nickname, which means God sees me. In the middle of all this sexual brokenness, Jesus comes to this abused young woman and treats her like a human being. She doesn't earn this special appearance by the angel of the Lord. This is the first time we've seen him in the scriptures. He pursues her and blesses her because he is good and gracious. As we, as we finish this morning, I just want to share a couple thoughts from a couple women who have valuable perspectives on this story. The first is from Anna Mead Harris. She writes, Hagar had never truly been seen by another person. Her enslavers saw her as the spoils of conflict. Abram and Sarai saw her as an incubator for the promised child. But God saw her, heard her, and knew her. He understood her history and spoke directly to her greatest fears by providing for her needs and giving her a hopeful future. I don't know if you ever feel unseen, but God sees you. God knows you. God cares for you and he understands you even if it doesn't feel like anyone else does. Wendy Alsup writes, God sees the single woman celebrating at a friend's wedding, lonely and longing for her own. God sees the wife who suffers abuse at her husband's hand, feeling devoid of ways to address it. God sees the youth abused by the authorities in her life. God sees the single mom overwhelmed by the needs of her children and herself. God sees us when we are depleted, undone, and afraid. I think that's a really powerful observation, especially for many women who often have a more difficult experience because of the circumstances they found themselves in. That in, in that culture, we, have, uh, we can see that, that being um, pregnant is this high honor, and yet in our culture, we've d- reduced pregnancy to uh, oftentimes an inconvenience and, and sometimes a cultural stigma depending on how that takes place. How many women are betrayed by friends and family and cast out because of the situation that they find themselves in, whether it was their fault or not? Jesus sees. Jesus knows. 
And whether you're a man or a woman today, whether you're young or old, married or single, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, Yahweh, he sees you, he knows you, he loves you. Whether you feel broken from sexual sin, either done by you or to you, or broken from some other kind of relational fallout, damaged from poor choices or the abuse of others, Jesus' mission is for you. The prophet Isaiah writes about Jesus in chapter 42. He says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. See, Isaiah sees Jesus coming and he's not storming through the jungle with a machete cutting down what's in his way. Jesus is singling out every fragile human being that will respond to his call and bandaging wounds and providing shelter and offering hope out of the abundance of his goodness. And I don't know about you this morning, but but I need that. I need the goodness, the grace of Christ. Every day. Let's do some questions. Consent is not enough as a sexual ethic, but can you speak of the problem of sex without consent, even in marriage, as for a husband to demand it? Yeah, I mean, consent is not enough, but it's it's not. Um, it's a baseline, right? Like, it's, it's not something to throw out. Um, the scriptures are clear that sex and marriage should be mutual. And there is no place for a husband or a wife. I know it's often, it's almost always statistically men who are abusive, but the reality is that women can be abusive as well. There's never a reason for sex to be leveraged in a demanding way. It's meant to mutually build up and draw a couple together. And if, if, the, um, if the dynamics at play are uh, manipulative or demanding, then that's not serving its purpose. That has no place in a Christian home. In what ways as a church can we prioritize care for the abused and marginalized among us? I think the first thing is, is to just recognize that, that, that there are abused and marginalized people among us. We so often come into a church building and we just assume that everybody's okay all the time and we think that, that we have to be um, put on this mask of just cheery niceness and that the very idea that there would be realistically deeply hurting people in our midst week after week after week that are for whatever reason unable to share their stories That's really disheartening, right? Of all the places in the world, we should be a place where we can, with open arms, hear the stories of the hurting and provide comfort and care for them. And so I think for for me, for you individually, is are you a person who can carry those kind of burdens? 
for those that you know in this church? Do you know people? Do you have relationships? And not with everyone, and I know I talk about this all the time, but it's important. Do you know people in the church community that you can open up your heart to? That if you're struggling in whatever way, there's someone that you can share that with, knowing that they will hold that and care for you and point you back to Christ in that. That, that kind of culture will be created here, but we have to be willing to step into it. What points to the angel of the Lord being Jesus? Um, so the, the idea that the angel of the Lord is Jesus kind of comes from the idea that we have uh, we understand God as a trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son, um, in his incarnate um, life, is a human being. He's a, he's a physical person. Um, the angel of the Lord is, a, in some sense, a physical representation not, not in the same way that Jesus is, not, not born of a woman, not a, a strictly human person, but is a visible expression of who God is. Uh, and multiple times throughout the Old Testament, you can do a word study or in, on the phrase, the angel of the Lord, you will see these two characters interacting with one another. Um, and it's reasonable to assume that one of them isn't the Holy Spirit. If they're both God, it seems logical that the the one that is visible would be the Son. Um, additionally, Jesus several times in the Gospels points back to circumstances in the Old Testament um, that link him to appearances of the angel of the Lord. Like I said, the angel of the Lord is manifested in the burning bush. And in John, uh, Jesus uh, talks about that experience in a way that makes his enemies think he's saying that he was in the burning bush which I think is what he was saying, and they all got mad at him, and they, you know, they want to kill him for that. So I think there's a lot of good evidence to point to that says that appearances of the angel, angel of the Lord, at least sometimes when it seems like uh, the angel of the Lord is God himself, uh, that is a, um, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Last question, why do you think it's so important for us in our suffering to be seen and understood and received and why so destructive to be rejected? Why do you think it's so important for us in our suffering to be seen and understood and received and why so destructive to be rejected? Because I think we all know that we cannot, um, we cannot make it alone, right? Deep down, we all know that we are fragile people, that we have um, significant flaws and weaknesses, that we... Um, You know, some of us are better than others of like putting on a brave face and just pressing forward through obstacles. And, but after a while, that just kind of wears you down. And I think we need to know that we are 
loved, that we are cared for, that we are supported. Because sooner or later, we're going to run out of energy. We're going to run out of the ability to pep talk ourselves into productivity. And even if everything in our life is going amazingly, we all run out of gas sooner or later. And then when we suffer, suffer is a great opportunity for doubt to creep into our hearts, right? If, if, you, if you are trying your best to live a life that is good and right and, and people mistreat you, they speak against you, they do things that harm you, they don't treat you as an image bearer of God, but as a, as a thing to be used. Like again, there's, there's, a, there's an element of like pushing past that and getting, getting through it, but it, it grates at your soul. And if all you receive is rejection, if you cannot hear the voice of Jesus saying, I love you and I know you and I care for you and you're special to me, then sooner or later, I, that just creates despair. And I think it's just no matter who we are, eventually you will run out of steam. You will run out of positive self-talk. You will run out of determination. And you need... You need the love of Christ, the unending, never-changing love of Jesus to say, I see you, I know you, I care about you. Yeah. The, um, the well that Hagar meets the angel of the Lord in is called Beer Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. When we, when we come to the communion table, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus in his death. But this isn't a celebration because he died. Uh, chances are if, if Christianity was founded on the death of Christ, it would be gone. Um, this reminder of the death of Christ is in the context of the fact that he rose from the dead. Jesus is Jesus is the living one who sees me. And he took our brokenness on himself and paid for our sins on the cross, through his death. But he rose from the dead and he continues to be the living one who sees me, who gives me a future and a hope. And so as we sing, um, I just invite you to come up and take the communion elements back to your seat. Um, Think about the death of Jesus on your behalf, but also the fact that he rose from the dead on the third day to give you hope, to give you his own life. And that his promise to Hagar 
that he sees her is the same promise that he has for us today. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.